Welcome to New City Church. This is Matt Freeman, and we are so thankful you are studying the Word of God with us. Jesus founded New City after our forever home, the New Jerusalem from Revelation 21. He wrote our mission statement to foster, strengthen, and grow an unashamed bride looking for Jesus' return. Let's lean completely on the anointing of the Holy Spirit to teach us all things from 1 John 2.27. God is so eager to teach you the depth of his word. Enjoy the study. You know, if you would have told me 10 years ago when I started, the Lord really laid on my heart to start reading through the Bible cover to cover every year and diving into it deep because I, at that point, I'm going to share a lot of this testimony at some point, maybe at the December 5th meeting. But if you would have told me then that 10 years later, I'd be standing here sharing with you everything that I wrote down that the Lord showed me, I would have told you you were nuts, that there's no way. At 10 years back in Oklahoma City, up in Kansas City, I was on a totally different trajectory from my life and path, and the Lord really impressed on me that, hey, there's 77% of my word is the Old Testament, and you've heard nobody teach it in your entire life, so you need to go learn it, and that's what I did. Anyway, I plan on sharing a lot of that story on December the 5th and kind of what happened and the, how the Lord imparted on New City Church and the visions he gave me for it and what he spoke about it. I'm going to share a lot of that on the 5th, so I'm, I'm excited to share that with all of you, and I hope it's a blessing and encouragement just to know that God is still in the miracle business, and he's still in the business of telling you directionally what he wants you to do in his life, in your life, to serve him, and... I've got, I think I showed it once a long time ago, but I have a prayer card on my desk now from 2002 that I wrote down a prayer that the Lord would teach me Revelation so that I could share and teach with others. And, you know, almost 20 years later, he answered that prayer, which is incredible. And it's always in his timing. But can you hear me okay, Ryan? Is this okay? Ryan gave me the wireless mic back again, so I've got my, I'm doing my best rock concert impression today. But we're going to dive into chapter 20, and it's really a continuation of chapter 19 from last time when we finished. And chapter 20, if you remember the last, oh, six chapters of the Bible, can you hear it okay, Ron? It's like, oh, J.E. doesn't like it. Okay. Okay. Is this better, J.E.? Oh, that is better. It is better. Okay. Well, I'll just leave this on now. I'll have two mics. So the, the final six chapters of the Bible, we've been talking about this for a while, and, and I hope you all get my sarcasm. When It's my love language, by the way. Sarcasm, in case you haven't noticed, is my love language. And so it, most of what I say, probably 99.5% of it is sarcasm if, if we're talking one-on-one. So just know that about me in advance. I don't mean it personal, I promise. Uh, J.E. knows what I'm talking about. But the last six chapters of the Bible, sarcastically, I've labeled the Great Reset because that's you can just Google the World Economic Forum and the whole thing about the Great Reset and what they're trying to do to usher in the kingdom without the king. That's the point. And we've talked about the verses the UN shows where they remove the front part from Micah and Isaiah regarding the king of kings, but they will learn war no more. They'll beat their plows into, or spears into plowshares, etc. In any case, that's the last six chapters of the Bible, really, and, and we're going to study 
what is the kingdom all about today? So last time as we closed out 19, we talked about all the promises in the Old Testament that the Lord would establish his kingdom. And we looked at over 75 verses in the Old Testament that promises a kingdom to Jesus. And all the prophecies, the point I was trying to drive home last time, I hope it made sense, is that when you look at all the prophecies that Jesus fulfilled on his first arrival, that he would be given vinegar and gall to drink, they would cast lots for his garments, they, he would ride in on a donkey according to Zechariah 9.9, all of these things, his hands and his feet would be pierced, he would cry from the cross in Psalms 22, all of those were fulfilled literally. And so when you look at all of these prophecies that are yet to be fulfilled, God has given us a pattern of what to expect. And so to me, it's the most exciting thing in the entire Bible to know that there is going to come a point where Jesus fulfills all of these prophecies. And the millennium is such an incredible period of time that the Bible talks about it all over the place, but not in a lot of detail. And so we're going to look at a lot of verses of what are the characteristics of the millennium during this time. And chapter 20, like I mentioned, really is a continuation of chapter 19. And so, remember, Jesus returns. He's vanquished his enemies. He's sitting there on the horse, the white horse. We looked at the different errands he's going to run during that time period where he's going to go to the Mount of Olives. He's going to step foot on it, and it's going to cleave. He's going to go from Isaiah 63 down to the remnant of Israel and rescue them and bring them back. All of these things will... Chapter 20 opens up what's happening during this window. So, and I saw an angel come down from heaven having the key of the bottomless pit and a great chain in his hand. And so remember earlier in Revelation, all the way back in chapter 9, the key to the bottomless pit was given to a different angel. Remember it was given to Satan. We looked at that star that fell from heaven that had the key to the bottomless pit given to him. And we opened it up. He opened it up in those demonic hordes, those locusts came out on the earth. We looked at that. It was the fifth angel sounded during those judgments. So in verse 2, so, so basically at this point, that key has been taken and given to somebody else. That's the point. It's a different angel, and he's, he's got the key. So in verse 2, and he laid hold of the dragon. Remember that's Satan from chapter 12, the dragon. And I saw, or he hold, laid hold of the dragon, that old serpent, which is the devil, and Satan, and bound him a thousand years. So notice that it doesn't take Jesus to bind Satan. It just takes Jesus's command. And Jesus and Satan are not co-equals. Jesus created Satan. And there's a lot you can learn from Isaiah 14, Ezekiel 28, about what was Satan's role when he was created? What was it? He was a, he was, his name in the Hebrew, Lucifer, means light bearer. And he was the canopy over the throne of God. And he led worship in heaven. We can learn that from Ezekiel 28 and Isaiah 14. And when he rebelled, he drew, he drew a third of the angels with him. So, And that was from Revelation 12. But his destiny is laid out in Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28. But notice it doesn't take Jesus. So they're, they're not, despite what some cultural authors and things would tell you out there, they are not co-equals. They're not brothers. They're not at war with each other because they're, they're equal. Jesus breathed him into existence and cast him into the bottomless pit and shut him up and set a seal upon him that he should deceive the nations no more. 
till the thousand years should be fulfilled, and after that, he must be loosed a little season. So during the millennium, to open up this chapter leading into the millennium, Satan is bound for a thousand years by an angel into the bottomless pit. Now, remember, the bottomless pit, geographically, it seems the Bible teaches that it's at the center of the earth, and that's where the rich man and Lazarus, that whole event, happens in Luke 16. I think I've got that in the notes here in a minute. But Satan's bound for a thousand years, and my, part of my question or challenge to you is, does he seem bound right now? One of the, my favorite verses from Chuck Smith from Calvary Chapel decades ago, he said, if, if Satan's bound right now, his chain's too long because there's a lot of evil going on in the world right now. And it says that he will deceive the nations no more. Every nation on earth is deceived by him right now, every single one of them. There's not one that isn't. You could say years ago the United States was with, withstanding that deception for a long time when we welcomed prayer in our school, we welcomed the Lord in our courthouses, we look, welcomed the word of God and prayer before sports, you know, et cetera. But we are so far removed from that, even just in my lifetime as a kid. I remember going to football games growing up, and there was prayer beforehand. There was prayer openly in the stadium and everybody confessing the Lord before teams would get on the field and play. And now if you did that, you'd have a thousand lawsuits against you, and there's no telling what else. He is not bound right now. But in this chapter, we'll see the reference to thousand years six times. So what I want you to notice is the millennium is all over the Bible, but it's only here in this chapter that we learn that it's a thousand-year period. So the concept of it is everywhere. The characteristics, what's going on, the promise of Jesus ruling and reigning. But it's only in chapter 20 that six times it says a thousand years. Six straight times in verses 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, and 7. Six straight times. And this is totally just my speculation, but why six straight verses of a thousand years? And again, Acts 17, 11 applies to everything, but I was sitting there thinking about, gosh, that seems like six straight thousand years and then the millennium. And it could tie into the six days of, of recreation from Genesis 1, the 6,000 years of human history from the fall of Adam until Jesus returns. It could be a pattern there that's just hidden, just something to think about. But six straight references to a thousand years so it's the only place in the Bible that the millennium time period is distinguished because, all, again, remember, all through the Bible, Jesus has promised a throne, an everlasting throne, a kingdom, and it will be everlasting. The first part of it is a thousand years, and then there's some more changes. But it's here that we get a thousand years. So Satan being bound and thrown into the bottomless pit is prophesied back in Isaiah 14. And this is one of those cool chapters where there's prophecies that the prophet, the Holy Spirit, is speaking to a literal earthly king, but then it shifts all of a sudden. And it goes into much deeper prophecy against someone else. And it's starting in verse 9. This is speaking of Satan. The Lord says, Hell from beneath is moved for thee to meet thee at thy coming. It stirreth up the dead for thee, even all the chief ones of the earth. It, has, it hath raised up from their thrones all the kings of the nations, and they shall speak and say unto thee, Art thou also become weak as we? Art thou become like unto us? The pomp is brought down to the grave, and the noise of thy 
vials, the worm is spread under thee, and the worms cover thee. How art thou fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning? How art thou cut down to the ground, which didst weaken the nations? So notice that the people in the bottomless pit are saying to, the, to him at this time when he's bound a thousand years, have you become weak as we are? You know, is this the guy? And you're going to see in a second, they say, is this the one that deceived the nations all those decades, all those centuries? For thou hast said in thine heart, so here are the five I wills of what Satan said. I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will sit also upon the mount of the congregation in the sides of the north. That's not magnetic north. It's a geometric north. Uh, Verse 14, I will send above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the most high. See, Satan's goal in rebellion was to be like Jesus. It was never to replace him. It was to be co-equals with him. And that's the temptation he gives Eve in the garden. Remember, when you eat of this tree, you shall be like God. It's the same temptation. We've talked about this some in here, but it's the same temptation. The New Age movement is propagating to your children that you can reach a certain point of enlightenment so that you are like Jesus. And he was just the example for us on what we could be. It's the lie straight from from the bottomless pit, from Satan himself. So, yet thou shalt be brought down to hell to the sides of the pit. They that see thee shall narrowly look upon thee and consider thee, saying, Is this the man that made the earth to tremble, that did shake kingdoms, that made the world as a wilderness and destroyed the cities thereof, that opened not the house of his prisoners? You know, part of you should think, when did Satan make the world as a wilderness and destroy the cities thereof? Well, that was at the rebellion all the way back in Genesis. And at some point, maybe after we finish Revelation, we'll do a couple of studies before we start the next book and look at that as one of them. But it's amazing when you, when you combine Genesis 1-1-1-2, Isaiah 45-18, and Jeremiah 4, you'll get all of that so that you see the rebellion first led by Satan that led to the earth being desolate and confused without form and void. So the last verse, what I love about this in verse 7, the last verse, it's a direct contradiction to what Jesus did in his first arrival. So he did open the prisoners to them that are bound. And of course, this is because Satan wants to be like him. Remember in verse 7, it says, that opened not the house of his prisoners. See, Satan is totally powerless to bring those that worshiped him out of the prison. But Jesus did those that were in him. Remember in Matthew, it's the one place in the entire Bible you get a hint of it after Jesus is resurrected. There were droves of people that were resurrected with him, and thus he fulfilled the feast of the first fruits. He was the first resurrection, and then others followed him. And that's in Matthew, you can look at that. But in Isaiah 61:1, speaking of Jesus. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord hath anointed me to preach good tidings unto the meek. He hath sent me to build up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to them that are bound. And not prison, in this case, it's not prison like a bad place. It's just they were resurrected after him. And when you, when you study Luke 16 and the, and the Rich man and Lazarus, there's the two sides of Abraham's bosom in the, in the center of the earth, the bad side and the good side where Lazarus was, where he was cared for until Jesus was resurrected because he, he had to be first because he was the first fruits. 
So in Revelation 20, verse 4, And I saw thrones, and they set upon them, and judgment was given unto them. And I saw the souls of them that were beheaded for the witness of Jesus and for the word of God, and which had not worshipped the beast, neither his image, neither had received his mark upon their foreheads or in their hands, and they lived and reigned with Christ a thousand years. So the thrones, going back to Daniel 7, 9, look at this. I beheld till the thrones were cast down, and the Ancient of Days did sit, whose garment was white as snow, and the hair of his head like the pure wool. His throne was like the fiery flame, and his wheels as burning fire. So the word cast down there, it it really means to be placed. So these thrones from Daniel 7, it's these thrones are set in place and established on a foundation, so to speak. So that's, if you're in the church and you're following Jesus and you are giving your all to him, this is your destiny. Again, we talk about a lot, to rule and to reign. So what judgment will be given to us when you think about it? 1 Corinthians 6.3, Know ye not that we shall judge angels? How much more things that pertain to this life? So we're going to judge angels. That's pretty exciting. I don't even know what that's going to look like, but how cool is that, that we get to judge angels? Luke 22, And I appoint unto you a kingdom, as my Father hath appointed unto me, that ye may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. So that's pretty cool too. And we're going to look at how they get land in the millennium that's, that's partitioned from the north to the south with Dan. There's a holy district. All of that's in Ezekiel. So verse 5, But the rest of the dead lived not again until the thousand years were finished. This is the first resurrection. So the rest of the dead... So who is Jesus talking about? See, when he steps foot on the earth, there's a lot of different people that go into the millennium. There's us, the church, who are raptured out beforehand, and we return with him in Revelation 19. There's the Old Testament saints that are resurrected when he steps foot on the earth. Remember, he says John the Baptist was the close of the Old Testament. The law and the prophets were until John. So then they're resurrected according to Job and Daniel when Jesus steps foot on the earth. There are those that survived the tribulation that did not take the mark of the beast, and they go into the millennium as just normal people. They survive, and Zechariah talks about that. So there's this resurrection when he steps foot on the earth with the Old Testament saints. Well, those that did not know the Lord, those that have rejected him from the beginning, they are not resurrected until after the thousand years are up at the white throne judgment. And, we're gonna, and that's, that's what closes chapter 20. We'll look at that next week and what that's all about. But that's called the second death, according to the Bible. And so the rest of the dead, they don't live again until the thousand years are up. So this rich man we're going to look at right here in Luke 16, the one that rejected the Lord, he is still there in Abraham's bosom on the bad side being tormented right now. And he's going to be there until the thousand years are up. And then he's resurrected to an even more stern judgment at the white throne and cast into what the Bible refers to as the lake of fire. But in Luke 16, and in hell he lift up his eyes being in torments and seeth Abraham afar off and Lazarus in his bosom. And he cried and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue for I am tormented in this flame. So if you read that whole 
that whole section of Luke 16 that's all about the rich man and Lazarus, you can learn a lot about the afterlife. So this guy, he had memories. He knew what he needed to do to be saved. He, he pleaded with Abraham to send a prophet to his brothers so that they could be saved before they end up where he is. He never argued that what he was getting was not just. He never once says, this is not fair, let me out of here. He just pleads that others don't join him there, others that he loved and cared for deeply that were still alive on the earth. And so you can learn a lot about that chapter. And if you ever want some motivation to go out and witness for the Lord, just read Luke 16 and then, and then just think about all of those that you know that don't know the Lord. But they're not brought forth again until the white throne judgment. And that's what closes Revelation 20. So in verse 6, Blessed and holy is he that hath part in the first resurrection. On such the second death hath no power. So think about this. What did Jesus say in John 3? You must be born again, right? So to, to have eternal life, you've got two options. You can be born twice and die once, or you can be born once and die twice. Those are your options. And when you really think about it, you're born, you, then you come to know the Lord, you're born again, you're a, a new creation. There's nothing you can do to be unborn after that point. You know, no matter what you wanted to do, as bad as I would want to, if, if I wanted to, I should say, I could never once say, man, I wish my mom never would have given birth to me. You know, I could, I could do anything in the world, and it's not going to change the fact that I was born. And the same is true once you come into Jesus. There's nothing you can do to change the fact that you accepted the Lord right there. No matter what you do in your life afterwards, you are saved. And praise God, it's not in your strength to hold on to it. Because I can promise you every one of us in this room would lose it somehow. And, but you can be born twice. That's, that's the key. Be born twice, and then you only die once. And that's what, exactly what the Bible means by, on such the second death hath no power. So if you're in Jesus, death, hell, and the grave, they have absolutely no power, no authority, and no dominion over you at all. Praise God. So in verse 7, And when the thousand years are expired, Satan shall be loosed out of his prison, and he shall go out to deceive the nations which are in the four quarters of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together to battle, the number of whom is as the sand of the sea. And so get the picture, at the end of the thousand years, Satan's loosed and he's allowed to deceive the nations once again. And what it shows you, because you see that they all come to gather together, together to battle Jesus again in Jerusalem. And it just tells you how wicked and deceitful is the heart of man. That you're going to live on this earth with the king of kings, for a thousand years in complete prosperity, no sickness if you're in him. There's going to be so much going on. And yet at the end of the thousand years, the people that are living near the millennium, a lot of them are going to rebel against God. That's pretty crazy when you really think about it. But it's exactly what the angels did. They were created praising the Lord. In Job, they were created and cheered when God made the earth according to Job. So they were created sometime before the earth, but yet a third of them still rebelled against him, despite having absolute knowledge of him, being in his presence, never being outside of the throne room, but they still believed the lie that they could unseat the king. And, and it's going to be the exact same thing, but with mankind. 
at the end of the thousand years. So the reference to Gog, it's a demon title from Amos 7.1 in the Septuagint. If you don't know what the Septuagint is, it's the Old Testament was translated by 70 of the greatest Greek scholars on earth 300 years before Jesus walked the planet. So think about it around 300, 350 BC. They, they got 70 of the best scholars. They wrote down the Old Testament in Greek and had it in black and white circulating the earth before Jesus walked the planet. But it's amazing. You can learn a lot from the Septuagint. It's a really neat copy of the Old Testament. But in Amos 7, 1, this is the reference to Gog. Thus hath the Lord God showed me, and behold, a swarm of locusts coming from the east, and behold, one caterpillar, King Gog. And so there's this reference to Gog, and, and the other reference to him is in Ezekiel 38 and 39, that war of Turkey and Russia and Iran or Persia coming against Israel to try to wipe them out. They're led astray by Gog in doing that. And, and also these demonic locusts, again, were back in Revelation 9. So in verse 9, And they went up to the breadth of the earth and compassed the camp of the saints about and, and the beloved city, that's Jerusalem, and fire came down from God out of heaven and devoured them. So once again, his enemies surround Jerusalem, and this time Jesus does not use the word of his mouth, but the Father sends fire down from heaven to consume all of them and his enemies. In verse 10, and the devil that deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are and shall be tormented day and night forever and ever. So the beast and his false prophet, remember, they get thrown into the lake of fire back at the earlier when Jesus returned. And they're still there at this time, a thousand years later, still there, still being tormented. So they skip the bottomless pit. There's no intermediate stop for them. Revelation 19, 20 is where you see that. And the beast was taken, and with him the false prophet that wrought miracles before him, which, with which he deceived them that had received the mark, and them that worshipped his image. These both were cast alive into the lake of fire, burning with brimstone. So they're still there after a thousand years. So we just ran through 10 verses about the millennium, this thousand-year reign of Jesus on the earth. And we looked at last time over, like I mentioned, over 75 verses that promise this kingdom to Jesus. In Luke 131, remember, he shall be given the throne of his father, David. That was the promise from Gabriel to Mary. It's promised to David throughout the Old Testament, starts in 2 Samuel 7. But Jesus changes everything when he returns, even the landscape from Zechariah 14. Remember, and his feet shall stand in that day upon the Mount of Olives, which is before Jerusalem on the east. And the Mount of Olives shall cleave in the midst thereof toward the east and toward the west. And there shall be a very great valley. And half of the mountain shall remove toward the north and half of it toward the south. And that's one of the things he does when he returns. But when you look at Isaiah 2... So about the millennium, it shall come to pass in the last days that the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established in the top of the mountains and shall be exalted above the hills and all nations shall flow unto it. See, when he sets up his kingdom, every nation on the earth is going to come to worship him and bring gifts and offerings. And next time we're going to talk about a very special gift that Ethiopia has for Jesus when he returns. And that's a reference from Acts 8. But Isaiah 2, 3, and many people shall go and say, 
Come ye and let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the, of the God of Jacob, and he will teach us his ways, and we will walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. So they're going to know that this is the God of Jacob, the God of the Old Testament, Jesus himself ruling and reigning. Let's go to be taught by him. In Isaiah 40, or I'm sorry, 2 4, and he shall judge among the nations. And shall rebuke many people. And then there's that, that United Nations verse. And they shall break their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. And that's obviously the goal of the United Nations is to bring right, peace on earth. And remember what the New Testament says. When they, surely when they say peace and safety, then sudden destruction shall fall upon them. Because they want it without the Lord. They want it without the king. They want to bring it about their way. But Isaiah 40, verses 9 through 11, O Zion, that bring us good tidings, get thee up into the high mountain. O Jerusalem, that bring us good tidings, lift up thy voice with strength, lift it up, be not afraid. Say unto the cities of Judah, Behold your God, behold the Lord God, will come with strong hand, and his arm shall rule for him. Behold, his reward is with him. Remember, we've talked about those five crowns in the Bible all the promises to the overcomer from Revelation 2 and 3. There's so many promises for you and I of inheritance in the Bible, of what you get to look forward to. And his work before him, he shall feed his flock like a shepherd. He shall gather the lambs with his arm and carry them in his bosom. He shall gently lead those that are with young. So the millennium, it's going to be a very different time on the earth, one like we've never seen before. You know, there's really two major events that categorize the world as we live in it today. When creation was fractured in the beginning in Genesis, when Adam fell and rebelled, when Eve fell, I should say, it was deceived and Adam joined her. The other one is the flood, after the flood of Noah. There was, there's a lot the Bible talks about, about there seemed to be some type of firmament around the earth that was, that was more protective from the ozone layer. It had never rained before. We know the, the barometric pressure had to be at least double what it is now, otherwise pterodactyls could not have flown. Engineers have, have discovered that. They look at how a pterodactyl is designed with the wing, and it can't fly today. And so it had to be something different then. It's, it was an, it's, so there's these two major events in the world that have happened to creation that we really don't know much about, honestly. Uh, there probably was a universal climate before the flood because they have found fossils of woolly mammoths and things that had palm leaves in their mouths. And of course, that doesn't grow up in Antarctica or, or anywhere where it's cold. So what was going on there? You know, when you think about it, there's a lot that we don't know, which just, it drives, for me, it drives my curiosity on what in the world, what kind of world did Noah live in? And then afterward, what was it like then? But there's a little bit we can learn about the millennium from the Bible. And so what I've listed out these next few slides is just looking at what are the characteristics of the millennium that we can take out of the Bible? Because it is the source of truth. And so instead of speculating, let's just see what it says. We know the government will be upon his shoulders from Isaiah 9:6. For unto us a child is born, and unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. It's never happened. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. His kingdom will not be destroyed, according to Daniel 7. 
I saw in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man came with the clouds of heaven and came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought him near before him, and there was given him dominion and glory and a kingdom that all people, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away in his kingdom that which shall not be destroyed. And notice that it's all people, nations, and languages. This is a worldly thing. We will judge the world and angels according to 1 Corinthians 6. We looked at a portion of this earlier, but I, I want to read this whole section because there's an important lesson for us today in it as well from 1 Corinthians 6, 1 through 6. Dare any of you having a matter against another go to law before the unjust and not before the saints? Do ye not know that the saints shall judge the world? And if the world shall be judged by you, are ye unworthy to judge the smallest matters? Know ye not that we shall judge angels? How much more things that pertain to this life? If then ye have judgments of things pertaining to this life, set them to judge who are least esteemed in the church. I speak to your shame. It is so that there is not a wise man, is it not so that there is not a wise man amongst you? No, not one that shall be able to judge between his brethren, but brother goeth to law with brother, and that before the unbelievers. And what God is saying is, you know, how dare you, if you have a, a grievance against another brother in the Lord, how dare you take it before an unjust court that wants to abolish his word, take out his Ten Commandments, go before an unbeliever to judge this matter before you, between the two of you. That's what this is all about, is take it to the church and let the least in the church judge this matter for you. And it's amazing. It's totally opposite of what the world tells you to do, right? It's the total opposite. And most things in Jesus are the total opposite of what the world tells you to do. But it's amazing how when you just think about how all through history, how churches just they are caught up in litigation and lawsuits and people bringing grievances before courts on this or that, or I, the coffee wasn't great, you know, or they bought the wrong kind of donuts. I have no idea. But it's just amazing how people don't just go amongst themselves and work this stuff out. But that's what it's all about. If you're going to judge angels in the world, how much more fit are you to judge between one another and just work it out with the Lord? Let him be the judge. He'll put down all rule and all enemies under his feet from 1 Corinthians 15. But every man in his own order, Christ the firstfruits. We talked about that a little bit at the beginning. Afterward, they that are Christ at his coming. Then cometh the end, when he shall have delivered up the kingdom to God, even the Father. When he shall have put down all rule and all authority and power. For he must reign till he hath put all enemies under his feet. I love that verse. Because at the end of the millennium, that's what it's about, is Jesus building this kingdom and then delivering that kingdom up to the Father at the end of it, when he wipes out all the, the rest of the enemies that surround Jerusalem. Pretty cool. He will give us power over the nations, according to Revelation 2. He that overcometh and keepeth my works unto the end, to him will I give power over the nations. And he shall rule them with a rod of iron. I don't know about you guys, but there is not a, a nation on earth right now that I'm ruling over. You know, I, maybe some of you are, I'm not sure, but this hasn't happened yet, obviously. He's going to give us power over the nations. How cool is that? The curse on plant life, 
and the ground is reversed. So the curse from Genesis 3.17, and unto Adam he said, because thou hast hearkened unto the voice of thy wife and hast eaten of the tree of which I commanded thee, saying, thou shalt not eat of it, cursed is the ground for thy sake. In sorrow shalt thou eat of it all the days of thy life. So the curse on the ground is reversed in the millennium. In Isaiah 32, until a spirit be poured upon us from on high, and the wilderness be a fruitful field, and the fruitful field be counted for a forest. And so that wilderness that Moses led the children of Israel through in Saudi Arabia, it's going to be a forest. How cool is that? So Isaiah 35, the wilderness and the solitary place shall be glad for them, and the desert shall rejoice and blossom as the rose. It shall blossom abundantly and rejoice even with joy and singing. The glory of Lebanon shall be given unto it, and the excellency of Carmel and Sharon. They shall see the glory of the Lord and the excellency of our God. So the desert's going to bloom like a rose, which is so cool. And it's what's amazing when you think about before Israel was reestablished as a nation in May 14th of 1948, there were all these prophecies in the Old Testament that when they returned to the land, number one, not only would they never be removed again, but the land of Israel would become a fruitful bounty, a blessing to the world. And so here you have this little bitty nation. Again, look up the square miles. It's a tenth of the size of the state of Oklahoma, and it is the chief exporter of fruit to Europe of the entire world. Now, if that's not a sign to all of those around them that hate the God of the Old Testament, man, I don't know what is, but he's like screaming at them, do you see what I'm doing? Even when you look on the satellite image, just look at Israel on Google Maps and then look at the nations around them, and you can see the barren, the, the wastelands. Look at Syria and Damascus. I mean, my goodness, the whole civil war, and it's just a desert, but Israel is this fruitful place with trees and fruit. So animals will not attack each other. I think RC will love this one from Isaiah 11. He's going to have all kinds of animals at his place, I'm sure. The wolf also shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the kid, and the calf and the young lion and the fatling together, and the little child shall lead them, and the cow and the bear shall feed, their young ones shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox." So think about that. You know, anytime my wife, she's not in here right now, but she loves to watch National Geographic, those shows of animals hunting and everything. It's because her dad was a science teacher, and she, she loves it. It's funny, if there's a rerun on, she's like, oh, I've seen this one. The lion wins this one. I, I remember this one. But she, she will be super excited about this. And how cool is that? The lion will not eat an animal anymore. It's going to eat straw like an ox. So that's going back to pre-flood. It goes back to a pre-flood environment, which is just amazing. And so from Isaiah 11, verse 8, the very next verse, I think there's no more poisonous snakes. Look at this. And the suckling child shall play in the hole of the asp, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the cockatrice den. That's a venomous snake. So a child's going to stick his hand in a, cock, in a venomous snake den and not be bit and, and have poison. Now, they have actually run some experiments lately in uh, hyperbaric chambers where if they increase the oxygen level two to three times, snakes become not poisonous, which is kind of cool when you think about it. So maybe the oxygen environment in our environment will increase such. 
The earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord. In Isaiah 11, 9, they shall not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountain. That's not true right now. They're trying to destroy the temple mount. For the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. And that's confirmed again in Habakkuk chapter 2. The moon and the sun will be changed. In Isaiah 24, it shall come to pass in that day that the Lord shall punish the host of the high ones that are on high and the kings of the earth upon the earth. And they shall be gathered together as prisoners are gathered in the pit and shall be shut up in the prison. And after many days shall they be visited. That's after a thousand years. We know that now. Then the moon shall be confounded and the sun ashamed when the Lord of hosts shall reign in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem and before his ancients gloriously. So that's pretty cool. There will be a pure language, according to Zephaniah 3. Therefore, wait ye upon me, saith the Lord, until the day that I rise up to the prey. For my determination is to gather the nations, that I may assemble the kingdom to pour upon them mine indignation. That's what happens in chapter 19 we looked at. Even all my fierce anger, for all the earth shall be devoured with the fire of my jealousy. For then will I turn to the people a pure language that they may call upon the name of the Lord to serve him with one consent. This reminds me of what they were trying to do in the Tower of Babel. Remember back in Genesis? They wanted one, because they were of one language. Remember the Lord says, there's nothing of which they can't accomplish. And so we're all going to have one language again, but, and we get to accomplish it all for the Lord, which is amazing. I'm just speculating, but it's probably Hebrew, just a hint. That uh, is the language that the Lord developed. He designed Hebrew. He spoke it to Adam. Adam spoke it to him. They, they shared that language, and the whole world probably spoke Hebrew until God scattered them and confused their language. But just something to think about. I think that's really cool that we're going to speak something together. We do know also, I didn't add this in the list. I should have, but you will be known as you know everybody else. So remember when Moses and Elijah were on the Mount Transfiguration and there's uh, Peter, James, and Andrew, and, and John are with Jesus, and they know, they know it's Moses and Elijah without even being introduced to them. They just know. So you get to go and talk, hang out with Moses, and Elijah, and Isaiah, and Daniel, and all these guys, and David, and Jacob, and Isaac, and Abraham, and you're just going to know them. And you're going to, and it's, how cool is that? They're going to sit down and say, man, I read all about you from Genesis 24, what was that like when God told you to go sacrifice Isaac? What were you thinking? You know, you came through with it, but just it's going to bring so much to life. So the pure language, I just love that. Ethiopia will bring a gift to the Messiah. We're going to talk about this in detail next week, but in Zephaniah 3 is a, is a little bit of a glimpse of it. From beyond the rivers of Ethiopia, my supplements, even the daughter of my dispersed, shall bring mine offering. And it brings, when you know that from Zephaniah, it makes Acts 8 come alive when the treasurer from Ethiopia has heard the Messiah is there and he's bringing a gift. Remember, he has this treasury with him in this caravan bringing a gift to Jerusalem. And in, um, in Acts 8, remember, it's Philip. Philip has to go to him and say, hey, you missed it. Jesus had to die first. And then he'll be back to rule and reign, and you can bring that gift. And he's explained to him Isaiah, and the, and the treasurer's reading the book of Isaiah, and he says, well, what must I do to be saved? And he's got to be baptized, and they go down. Anyway, it's a really cool story, but read that and, and bring into context the fact that 
Ethiopia was looking for Jesus to show up, and they have a gift for him. That's the point out of that whole story, is they've got something they've been waiting to deliver to Jerusalem for him. And Zephaniah 3 has a hint of that. In Jeremiah 31, there's no Jewish unbelievers. Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to bring them up out of the land of Egypt, which my covenant they break, although I was a husband unto them, saith the Lord. But this shall be the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, saith the Lord, I will put my law in their inward parts and write in their hearts and will be their God, and they shall be my people, and they shall teach no more every man his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them unto the greatest of them saith the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and will remember their sin no more. So that's pretty cool. There's just a hint of it. And again, all of this is incredible. You just need to look at it through the lens of Acts 17.11, but I love that. that It seems like there's a hint that there are no Jewish unbelievers. The heathen will perish out of his land from Psalms 10. He'll make Israel a strong nation that he rules over in Micah 4. Israel's land will be divided by tribe with a holy district and land for the prince of David from Ezekiel 48. So the Millennium Temple is only open on the Sabbath and the new moon. This is totally opposite of the Old Testament. Everything was closed then. And so Jesus is just taking that and reversing it because the Millennium Temple is only open on the Sabbath and the new moon from Ezekiel 46. Thus saith the Lord God, the the gate of the inner court that looketh toward the east shall be shut The six working days, but on the Sabbath it shall be opened, and in the day of the new moon it shall be opened. And the prince shall enter by the way of the porch of the gate without, and shall stand by the post of the gate, and the priest shall prepare his burnt offering. So there's going to be priests, the sons of Zadok again, and there's going to be sacrifices. And so when you look at Ezekiel from chapter 40 on, it's got a a full floor plan of the Millennium Temple in Ezekiel. And this was the best artist rendition I could find of it. And if you look at it, the stream coming out of it is in the, dire- the correct direction, and it goes south of the altar, which is right there, which even in that little detail they picked up correct. But in Ezekiel 47, afterward he brought me again to the door of the house, and behold, waters issued out from under the threshold of the house eastward. For the forefront of the house stood toward the east, and the waters came down from under the right side of the house at the south side of the altar. So even in that little detail, they have it drawn right. And these streams are going to come out of the Millennium Temple, streams of living water, and go east and go west to the Dead Sea and the Mediterranean. And that's really cool to think about that, again, Jesus literally fulfilling, I am the living water. And it's going to restore so much in the world. So the age of accountability might be 100 years old, from Isaiah 65. A lot of you can find out about the millennium is from Isaiah 65. So just read that whole chapter. There shall be no more thence an infinite days, nor an old man that hath not filled his days, for the child shall die an hundred years old, but the sinner being a hundred years old shall be accursed. So it kind of makes you wonder if you don't know the Lord by the age of a hundred, is that it? Is your chance up? I don't know. It's to- I'm totally speculating on some of that, but it's amazing how a lot of these verses give some hints of it. Sin is existent, but judged immediately from Isaiah 11. 
And note that all of this, this is not eternity yet. This is just life on earth with Jesus ruling and reigning and putting a lot of it back together. So death is only for the unbelieving Gentiles, maybe from Isaiah 65. You can look at that. Nations must send representatives at feast days. Otherwise, they do not get rain. From Zechariah 14, we talked about that. In Isaiah 16, 5, And mercy shall, be the throne, shall the throne be established, and he shall sit upon it in truth in the tabernacle of David, judging and seeking judgment and hasting righteousness. And then in Matthew 25, When the Son of Man shall come in his glory, and all the holy angels with him, then shall he sit upon the throne of his glory. Okay, so you may not be able to see this very well, but a couple years ago, I went to a Bible conference with Mason. I think he left the room, but it was down in Norman. I got to meet a guy named Bill Solace, if you can see that in the lower right-hand picture. And this is so funny, because like, to me, I was like, man, I got to meet this, this superstar. His name is Bill Solace. I bet not a single one of you in this room knows who Bill Solace is. And so that's okay. Maybe Roger does. But he, he is an author, speaker. He's on Prophecy Watchers here in Oklahoma City quite a bit. He lives out in, I think, Arizona. But he put together a, a couple of charts, and we don't have to go through these in detail, but from Daniel 12, 12, there's this little 75-day interval. And what it says in Daniel chapter 12, verse 11, and from the time that the daily sacrifice is taken away and the abomination of desolation is set up, there shall be 1,290 days. Blessed is he who waits and comes to the 1,335 days. So there's this 75-day interval. If you, if you remember everything from Daniel, and we've looked at all those references in Revelation of 42 months, 1,260 days, three and a half years, from the point that the abomination of desolation is set up until Jesus arrives is the 1,260-day window. Well, then Daniel 12 gives us a hint that there's a 75-day window past that, the 1290 and the 1335. So there's a 30-day and then the 75-day, it's all contained in there. So what happens in that 75-day interval? Well, obviously, Jesus has a lot to clean up. You and I have a lot to go do and run errands for him and go, go restore this, go set this up. And this is just, it's not an all-inclusive list, but I think it's a pretty good list. The Antichrist and false prophet are cast into the lake of fire. Satan's bound for a thousand years into the bottomless pit. The restoration of the earth, return of the Jewish remnant, resurrection of Old Testament saints, resurrection of the tribulation saints, mourning of Messiah, of the Messiah in Israel, that's from Zechariah, that they'll mourn for him whom they have pierced. End of the abomination of desolation. So the temple's been desecrated, so he's got to clean that up. And then the marriage supper of the Lamb. Remember, that's on the earth. So we talked about last time, or two times ago, really, the difference between the wedding ceremony and the wedding supper. And so the marriage supper's got to take place. And then there's the sheep and goat judgment from Matthew 25. And so the sheep and goat judgment, what is it? It's all about the nations that survive the tribulation they are brought before Jesus, and he judges them based on how they treated Israel during the seven-year tribulation, which is amazing when you think about it. And we're not going to read all of these verse by verse, but Matthew 25, the sheep and goat judgment, he's going to separate the sheep that blessed Israel and provided for them and took care of them, and the goats on the other side, and he's going to judge them for not taking care of Israel. So that's really, really pretty neat that during the 75-day window, there's a lot that's going to happen. And a lot of it 
How much are we involved in? What do we do? Where is he going to send us? You know, what is our role in restoring the earth and all of that? It's, it's going to be kind of a wait and see moment. But man, what a cool anticipation that we have to know what is my part during that. <clears throat> my, it may just be to sit there and hang out and watch Jesus do his thing for 75 days. I'd be good with that too. That's fine. Whatever he wants us to do. But the sheep and goat judgment, there were three. I put them all in there. There's three slides on it that you can read about. So go through that chapter and just digest that. That Man, Jesus is going to separate those nations out and the sheeps and the goats, and he's going to judge them based on their treatment of Israel during the tribulation, which is amazing. So I hope what you're getting out of this is there is more to look forward to in our lives in Jesus than there is on this earth with him. There's so much more that we get after this, and we really get to experience a lot of it, and we get to be a key part of it with him, we get to celebrate with him at the marriage ceremony in heaven. We get to come back to the earth and celebrate at the marriage supper. We get to help establish the kingdom. We talked about those white horses, how you get to hold on to that in the millennium that you ride back on with him. And if you're not in his word and you're not understanding and seeking understanding on this, it can really water down or inhibit your walk in this life. Because if you don't really know where you're going, how excited can you be? And so it's one of the things you do, right? Before you go somewhere new, you research what are the best restaurants? Where should we stay? What is there to do? You know, all of those kind of things. It's the same thing with this. This is a thousand-year vacation with the Lord. So don't you want to know what to do when you get there and what it's going to be like? And I do, which is why I love digging through the Bible and trying to find these little nuggets that the Lord has placed all through his word on this is what you have to look forward to. This is the hope that you have in me. This is where we're going. This is what you're going to get to be a part of. And it's something that everyone that's lived on earth from the Old Testament all the way back starting before Abraham looked to this day. Enoch prophesied about it before the flood of Noah. So everyone's been looking forward to this and we get to be a key part of it. How cool is that? That you get to be... What, I'm gonna, what I love, too, is I'm going to have so many questions for these guys from the Old Testament, but you know what? They're going to have so many questions for you. They're going to come and say, man, what was it like to live with the Holy Spirit indwelling you as the church? That was something that David pleaded for. And so he's going to have questions for you. He's going to say, what was that like to lay hands on someone and heal them by the power of the Holy Spirit? What was that like to cast out demons? What was that like to go to war with the King of Kings, with the living spirit of God in you that raised Jesus from the dead. So I'm just encouraging you again. I'm going to harp on this every week, but you have got to get in the word of God. And if you are not, you are putting yourself in danger in a lot of ways. It is the only offensive weapon that we have. And so it's the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. It's important because without it, it's impossible to please God. You have to get it only by reading the word that's how you get faith. Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God. In Acts 17, 11, our namesake for the men's Bible study, you've got to do it every day. Search the scriptures daily to prove that those things are so. So if you don't know the Lord, again, simple Romans 10, 9, that if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus and shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. Share that with everyone you know that does not know the Lord. Just take that to them. Take that promise with them that 
hey, you don't have to do anything to add to it afterwards, but I'm just challenging you, do this and see if your life doesn't change. You've tried everything else in your life. Just give Jesus a try. Just give him a chance and just see what happens. And he'll wipe everything. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be white as snow from Isaiah 1. So with that, I'm going to close this in prayer. And I'm going to pray over those of you that don't know my mother-in-law, Randy's mom, had to go into surgery this morning for her, her intestines. Um, she, she, bought, she fought through the Lord about 10 years ago, and the Lord miraculous, miraculously healed her of cancer. And she had a major surgery at that time. There's some issues kind of popping up from that right now, and she's, she was struggling, had to go to the emergency room on Friday. So we're going to keep praying for her and praying for healing, that the Lord raises her up again. I know I've talked about her some in here, and some of you even met her because Randy's parents come to church all once in a while from Lawton. But she has been the head cook at the church in Lawton for, I think, almost 30 years now. And during quarantine last year, she would not shut down her kitchen. She opened it up and fed about three to 400 homeless people every week in Lawton. She has a huge heart for the Lord. So if you think about it today, lift up Billy in your prayers. She, she needs a miraculous hand. The kingdom needs Billy Osborne. I'm just telling you right now, the kingdom needs her. And those people in Lawton are blessed to have her around and to open up her house the way she does. So I'll close this in prayer. We'll get out of here. Lord, thank you so much for this time together. God, we pray a special anointing upon the teaching and understanding of your word. God, I just pray that you would fill this place with your Holy Spirit and teach us all things, God. We are looking to you as the author and finisher of our faith. And God, we just thank you that you've preserved your word for almost 6,000 years so that we could have it today and still study it. And it is inexhaustible. And we thank you that there is so much joy in pulling out what you've concealed in it and what you've written there for us to find. We just love it, Lord. Thank you for teaching us and making us strong. Lace it in the front of our children's minds and the hearts as they go out into this world every single day at war with the enemy. The enemy wants our children. They want to lead them astray. And God, I'm just praying a supernatural hedge of protection around our kids, that they stay strong in you, that they are bold in proclaiming you. And Lord, we lift up Billy Osborne to you. God, we just pray that you would bless that surgery. Let there be nothing left open. Let there be nothing hindering complete healing, but remove all of that from her right now. And let it be a miracle that she rises up again to new life to continue serving you with all she has, as she has for so many decades. I thank you for her testimony. I thank you for the love that she pours into her family. And I thank you how she leads humbly by example for everyone to see. So thank you, God, for her. Just heal her right now. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.